boy, that escalated quickly. Does anyone know what movie that's from? No? Oh. Sadly confirming it. It's a quote that's been running through my head all week as I've been reading Genesis chapter 4. The immortal words of Ron Burgundy from Anchorman. And as I've been reading Genesis 4 and those words have been running through my head, it left me feeling two things. The first was, I'm getting old. My pop culture reference points are really out of date. Lots of you didn't know what that was from. Here I was thinking that Anchorman happened about five, maybe ten years ago until I looked it up and realized it was 2004. 2004, 15 years ago. Some of the students who come to night church were still in nappies when we were watching Anchorman. Good gosh. But the second thing I was thinking as I was reading Genesis chapter 4 was how spot on uh, Ron Burgundy is, is, is at describing what's going on here. Almost immediately after Adam and Eve are banished from the garden for rebelling against God, things go downhill very quickly. It begins with this kind of dodgy sacrifice that escalates into murder and then just kind of outright rebellion against God. A few generations later, we see that there's no sign of God in the picture and they're boastful about how vengeant they can be. And we're left thinking, boy, that escalated quickly. I mean, that got really out of hand fast. But setting aside the legend of Ron Burgundy for a moment, Genesis chapter 4, it was written for us. And it was written to show us three things. It was written to show us that there are two ways to worship. There are two very different ways of coping with reality. And ultimately, they highlight for us that there are two very different ways to live. Uh, To begin with, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we're introduced to these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1, it'd be great if you had a Bible open and you followed along with me, and there's a sermon outline there to see how we're tracking and to take some notes. Genesis chapter 1, verse 4 says this, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And then verse 2, later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, the only, two de- the only details we really get about these brothers is at the end of verse 2, now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. Uh, now, back in Genesis chapter 1, God told their dad, Adam, to subdue the earth and to fill it. And on the face of it, it seems like uh, Cain and Abel, they're actually doing a good job here. They're giving a good crack. Cain is doing what his father did. He's working with the ground from which he came. Abel is uh, trying to fill the earth with productive animals and it's all good so far. Uh, Their father, in in Genesis chapter 2, Adam was told to work and keep the earth, or to take care of the earth. Uh, Now those words, to work and keep, uh, it's always used in the Bible to describe the job of priests, the people who kept temples runnings. Uh, Their job was to work and keep the temple. Uh, So this pair, Cain and Abel, they share the responsibility of making the whole earth a place where God is worshipped making it a giant temple, a a giant garden of Eden where we get the chance to know God and enjoy God. That was their job. And their job, it's a little bit more difficult because of the curses in chapter 3, but they're getting on with it. Uh, And part of their job is to do what what, what priests do in most temples, which is to make sacrifices to God. But, and it's a significant but, when it comes to sacrifices for these kind of prototype priests, Only one of them comes up with the sacrificial goods. Abel's sacrifice gets the thumbs up from God, uh, but not Cain's. Verse 3, have a look at verse 3 with me. Uh, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the first fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, 
from the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour upon Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. Now, uh, this doesn't go down well with Cain, as you might understand, and so it says that Cain became very angry and his face was downcast. So what's the problem here? What's the problem with these sacrifices? Well, when we look at the text a bit more closely, we'll quickly see what's wrong. See, Cain just brought some fruit of the soil. Uh, The sum there gives the implication that Cain just brought any old thing, whatever was lying around. Uh, Whereas Abel, Abel brought the best bits, the fat portions, and he brought it from the best animals, the firstborn of his flock. And not only were the firstborn considered to be the best animals, but the first, but but to give your firstborn of your flock to God is is an expression of trust. It's like if you go fishing and you catch a fish and you give your first fish away. There's no guarantee you're going to catch any more. When you receive your first paycheck, you devote that to God. You're relying upon God to provide the rest of what you need. Abel gives God the best bits, the best animals, and he trusts in God to provide the rest. And so obviously God is delighted with him. So what's the difference that's going on here? What's the difference? Uh, To be honest, it's not so much the sacrifices themselves, but it's the attitude that they represent. You see, the difference here between Cain and Abel is the difference between wholeheartedness and tokenism. It's the difference between love and ritual. It's the difference between trust and self-reliance. It's the difference between delight and duty. You see, the issue here is real worship. Now, worship is just the Bible's summary word to, for how we, how we, to describe how we relate to God, how we choose to serve God. And the way in which we worship or serve God, if you want another word, is, is shown in the, in the attitude that we have towards God. And Cain's attitude, sadly, it's written all over his face. The second half of verse 5, so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. You see, for generations, children have been the masters of you can make me do it, but you can't make me enjoy it kind of attitude. So the room might get tidied, but it gets tidied while they're muttering, this is so unfair under their breath. The whole family may eventually get in the car and go out together, but one member of the family is going to spend the whole day dragging their feet uh, 10 steps behind everyone else. The food may get eaten, but only after the full repertoire of gagging noises has been wheeled out. I mean, we know it's not hard to spot when someone's heart is not in it. And it was just as obvious when Cain brings his sacrifice before God. Cain was going through the motions but not Abel. For Abel, it was all about God. You see, there's only two ways to worship. There's 100% wholehearted worship, which is all about God. Worship that consists of putting God first in every decision, in every priority, in every longing, putting Him first in every agenda for our whole lives. There's that. And then there's tokenism. Doing one or two things for God here and there, and expecting God to be grateful for the little that we do. But the big problem that we have is that in the Bible, tokenism doesn't count as worship. Tokenism doesn't count as worship. And if you come to church regularly like me, that can actually sound like bad news. You see, the unsettling news of Genesis chapter 4 is it raises the possibility for us that we could be doing some of the right things but we could be doing them for all the wrong reasons. 
And therefore, God does not look, look with favour upon our efforts. Now, I've got to be honest here, there's part of me that wants to get credit for religious type stuff. Um, don't you? Do you want to get credit for the stuff that you do? I, I feel like I should get some credit for being here today. Uh, the weather's not too bad. It's actually a nice sunny day. It's not too windy. Perfect, perfect conditions for me to go out and ride my bike. But I'm here. Don't I get some credit for that, God? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm going to church twice today. I have to listen to myself preach twice today. Don't I get some credit for that? I feel like I should get some credit for moving my family from sunny Sydney to windy Wellington to plant a church. Don't I get some credit for that, God? Now, that was Cain's approach. Look, I brought some stuff, God. Don't I get some credit for that? But that's not how it comes, that's not how it works when it comes to worship. We don't get a a running score from God. And so, verse 5, but on Cain, God did not look with favour. The reason is because it was all about Cain. Uh, there's a famous preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, he explains what's going on here, and he, uses, he explains it by using this story. It's this, this, the story of the carrot and the horse. It goes like this. I sit back, enjoy the story. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in a land. One day, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot, and he took it to his king and said, My Lord, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land. I want to give a plot of land to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this and he said, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, what would, what would the king give me for something even better? And so the next day the nobleman came before the king and he was leading behind him a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, My lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned the man's heart and said, Thank you. Took the horse and simply dismissed him. As the nobleman turns to walk out, he was perplexed. And so the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. You see, this is the difference between doing something for God and doing something for ourselves. The difference between real worship and self-worship. The difference between between, uh, Abel's sacrifice and Cain's. Abel trusted in God, Cain trusted in himself. Abel did it for God, Cain did it for himself. And so what does God ask of you and me? Well, he asks for 100%, everything, all of the time, every day, worship. We've got to be like Abel rather than Cain. Worship God for God, not for what we can get out of God. But there's something else we need to notice here. I mean, even if Abel had lived, there's no way he could have kept this up. Sooner or later, probably sooner, he would have become self-centered and preoccupied and half-hearted. He would have offered up second-rate worship. He would have turned up with mixed motives and a million other things on his mind. Because if God demands 100% wholehearted worship all the time, we all have a real problem. 
You see, God is really clear all the way through the Bible that this is what he expects from people like you and me. He expects everything all the time. So how can we pull that off? I don't know about you, but for me, that sounds like really bad news. That sounds impossible. We might have our good moments like Abel, but none of us can pull this off in the long run. But the great news of the Bible is that God has already done it for us. Jesus, by worshipping God perfectly as a human being and then offering himself up as a perfect, one-of-a-kind, infinitely powerful sacrifice in his death, he has pulled this worship off for us. And so listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 as he explains this for us. Uh, This is the start of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, Therefore, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, now I kind of pour into that, in view of God's mercy, in light of all that God has done for us in Jesus, that Paul has described for the previous 11 chapters, in view of Jesus living for us and dying for us and rising to new life for us, in view of God's mercy... Offer your bodies as, living, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What he's saying is that Jesus, the ultimate worshipper, he has worshipped perfectly and because of that, we can add our croaky and off-tuned voices to his. He is the perfect sacrifice who has given himself once and for all and because of that, we can add our imperfect lives as well. We can offer them up to God and they will be accepted. You see, there are only two kinds of worship. There's 100% wholehearted worship and then there's token, self-centered worship. There is God-pleasing worship and there is self-serving worship. Either we worship through Jesus on the basis of what he has done or we worship like Cain. We go it alone. We think God owes us because of the little token things we have done. There are only two ways to worship. But there are only two ways to cope with reality as well. And we see this in verses 6 to 16. Uh, Now, it's important to understand here, all is not lost at the end of verse 5. There is still hope. Yes, kind of Cain brought a rubbish sacrifice. And yes, it wasn't smart to think he could have got away with it. And yes, he's angry and it's written all over his face. And that's not great either. But things aren't hopeless yet. Uh, And I think at this point, we're supposed to feel a little bit sorry for Cain. I think, as I think we're supposed to, I think, I think Cain is actually the one we should be identifying with most in this, uh, in this chapter. He's stuffed up, but we know that none of us are perfect. He's mad at his little brother, and little brothers, they're generally pretty annoying, and so I get that. We all mess up, and, something, and, 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 and there's nothing worse than messing up when you're standing next to someone who gets it right especially when they're your little brother. And and that's enough to put us all in a grumpy mood. And so we know how Cain feels, and it feels horrible. And all is not lost yet. But he is a couple of bad decisions down a very dodgy road. But one good choice, and he can still kind of pull it all around. And so look at what God says in verse 6. Verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? You see, God knows that Cain has failed. Cain knows that Cain has failed. But both God and Cain know why he has failed. And so it's now crunch time for Cain. It's crunch time. How is he going to cope with reality? How is he going to cope with his own failure? In verse 7, God tells him what to do. 
He says, Cain, you know you failed. You need to do the right thing. And in the context, doing the right thing, it, it only means one thing. It means holding up his hands and saying to God, sorry, you're right, I blew it. I was half-hearted in my sacrifice. I offered sacrifices with mixed motives. That's the right thing to do in that situation. That's the one option. That's the one way of coping with reality. It's, it's, it's one way to cope with the failure that we live with. It's to do what is right and put your hands up and say, God, I'm sorry. And amazingly, God says, you know, if you say this, I'll accept you back. There is forgiveness, there is forgiveness here. He says to Cain, if you do what is right, will, I, will you not be accepted? But then there's the other option as well, and you can see that in the rest of verse 7. Verse 7, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your, at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. See, this is the option, to keep going down the road that he's on, to keep sinning, to keep making it all about him, to double down, to plunge deeper into evil and anger and blame. But God warns him, Cain, if you go down that road, there is great danger. There is a huge price to pay. And then there's verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they're out in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? You see, Cain, he had already refused to face reality and say sorry to God. And having taken that step, the only option uh, is to dig deeper, to lie, to protest his innocence. He says to God, I haven't failed. There was nothing wrong with my sacrifice. I don't know. I didn't kill him. It's got nothing to do with me. He gets all defensive, and as he does, he only highlights further his guilt. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I do not know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? You see that phrase, am I my brother's keeper? It's a famous one. Uh, but what you might not see straight away is that the word keeper, is again, it's the same word that God uses back when he tells Adam to, to work the garden and to keep it. So Adam is told to be a keeper, and so Cain and Abel, they were to be keepers. And so, am I my brother's keeper? Well, yes, Cain, you are. You know you are. You are to keep and take care of the whole earth. That includes your brother, Abel. And just like his father, Adam, Cain tries to deny all responsibility. What have you done? Now you are under a curse. Verse 11 now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. You see, the curse of Genesis 3 has been ramped up again. Now even rest will be, on, be beyond Cain's reach. Uh, and if things weren't bad enough for Cain already, he, he continues to feel bad for himself. He continues to play the victim. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you will drive me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But even then, it seems like God's kindness isn't exhausted. God gives him this protective tattoo. It says that no one can touch him. And Cain goes off from the presence of God to wander the earth. Now, I hope at this point you're seeing that this chapter is more than just a CSI about the first murder. Uh, it's actually about how we cope with reality. 
How do we cope with living in a messed up world? How do we cope when we fail? The choice we face is to hold our hands up to God and say, yes, I'm sorry, I blew it. Or it is to do what Cain did. It's to give in to our anger. It's to vent our anger on the nearest innocent person. It's to cast blame and deny in our anger that we've done anything wrong. And then it's to wallow in self-pity at our own situation. And the result, for, and the result of this for Cain, for his choice, is not relief, but restlessness. He chooses curse over blessing. He chooses independence over mercy. He chooses himself over God. And so I want to ask you, how do you cope with life in the real world? How do you cope when you fail, when you fall short? Do you do what is right and turn back to God? Or do you double down and get angry and blame others? I actually want you to think for a moment. I want you to think for a moment. When was the last time someone called you out on something? When was the last time someone caught you for lying or being deceitful? When was the last time someone caught you out for doing something that you knew offended a holy God or, or harmed someone else? When was, when was the last time where someone said, you're out of line, you've done wrong, you need to fix it? If you actually can't think of the last time, then that's a real problem because you've either been so angry in the past that no one's willing to bring it up with you again or you haven't got people around you who can speak to you like that. But when was the last time? How did you respond? How did you respond? Did you respond with anger? How dare you criticize me? Did you respond with blame, turning it back on them? Well, that's nothing compared to what you've done. Or did you respond with repentance? To say, sorry, yeah, I failed. Thanks, that's really hard to hear, but thanks for pointing that out. I'm sorry, what, what can I do to make things right? How did you respond? How do you respond? Next time it happens, how will you respond? How will you cope with the reality that we all fail? Now, the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, repentance, which is acknowledging the wrong that we've done and turning back to God, repentance is ultimate honesty. Repentance is ultimate honesty. It's being honest with ourselves. It's being honest before God. Repentance is saying sorry. That's being honest. It's being honest that we're flawed and fragile people. It's being honest about our half-hearted, self-centered tokenism that we pass off as worship. It's honest about our jealousy of others who seem to get it right. How are you going to cope with reality? The reality that we all fail. Are you going to cope by being honest and saying sorry to God, or are you going to double down on your anger? But there's two ways to worship. There's two ways to cope with reality. And this is because there are ultimately just two ways to live. Uh, in the final 10 verses, we see that Cain's family continues to live without God, and they get angrier and angrier. Uh, verse 23, which we hear Lamech, who's kind of Cain's great-great-great-great-grandson. Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech is avenged 
77 times. You see how he deals with reality. He doubles down on his anger and his rage. You see, things here, they're spiraling out of control. There is the sin that was crouching at the door is well and truly ruling over Cain's family now. And that's one way to live. With harshness, with anger, with violence, with no mention of God. But finally, there is another way to live. And we only catch just the tiniest glimpse of this at the end of the chapter. Uh, It's there in verse 26. Verse 26, Seth had a son and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. You see, here is the other way to live. To call on the name of the Lord. To to cry out to God for help. to, To start to pray. Now, for some of us, we have never called on the name of the Lord. We've been doing our own thing Uh, We've been coping with life as best we can without reference to God. And if that is you, can I ask you, can you recognize yourself in Cain? Not that I expect that you've killed any of your siblings, although you may have felt like it, but can you recognize your struggle in Cain, your frustration? Can you recognize your coping strategies in Cain? Don't be like God. No, sorry, don't be like Cain. Cry out to God. Be be like God. Do, Do that. You'll be fine. I don't know if you can do that. Um, don't be like Cain. Cry out to God. Cry out to God knowing that He is poised to listen, that He is poised to act and to save you. Because He has sent Jesus, the one true worshipper, who has offered up the perfect sacrifice for you in your place. If you have not called out to God, call out to Him now. Or maybe you have cried out to God like that years ago. And you don't need me to convince you that that you need God, that's a given, and and you you know you need God, that's partly why you're here. Uh, But could it be that in the details of this past week, or the one before, or the one before that, that you have been living more like Cain? Getting angry, being defensive, feeling sorry for yourself, trying to cope with life on your own, living for yourself rather than for God. Let me say to you this morning, as I say to myself, don't be like Cain. Don't be like Cain. Cry out to God. He is poised to listen, to act, to save you. Cry out to God. Now, if you're not sure of the words to use to cry out to God, we're going to sing our final, uh, our next song, uh, Rock of Ages. And as the band comes up, hear these words and make them your cry to God. Make them your cry to God, rock of ages. Not the labours of my hands can fulfil your law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You, God, must save. And you alone. Please stand as we sing.